Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. I have two teenagers at home. So we are, I am somewhat fluent in the language of say TikTok, though not on it myself. And, <laughs> uh, and so you hear about these people who, a year ago, nobody knew and now have literally 50, 100 million followers. And you ask, what do they do? And like, well, she dances. Like, you're like professionally trained. Like, no, like, like little dances that she comes up with, um, to, to songs. You know, they're pretty easy to learn. She seems nice enough. And it, and it really is hard. And to, to figure out what the algorithm is behind the scenes that's making this person take off like this. And of course, if any company in the world would love to find out, cause they'll do it for their own products or their own, uh, spokespeople and so forth. But, and given that, given that an ordinary person in this day and age can have that happen, it gives hope to anyone that they can too. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well. Hello Fresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at hellofresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. 
Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this, you're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with tap to pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Sam, welcome to the Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Uh, of course, thanks for having me. Yeah, it is my pleasure to have you here. So I, uh, as I was saying here before we hit record, uh, stumbled on your book on Amazon uh, situations matter, which was all about context. And I, I think part of the reason that must have showed up is I was writing a lot about context and how often it is overlooked by so many of us in almost every decision we make. Um, but before we get into uh, you know the content of the book, um, I want to start asking, what did your parents do for work? And how did that end up shaping the choices that you've made throughout your life and your career? Uh, what did my parents do for work? Uh, and I just did the thing where I repeated the question, right? So I can give myself a chance to think about how to, to, to most articulately answer this. Cause it's not a question I get often. Um, yeah. so, uh, my father, uh, when I was growing up was a English professor at a community college. And so he taught freshman composition and, uh, creative writing. Uh, my mother was a critical care nurse. And when I was in high school, she actually went back to graduate school and, uh, finished her PhD and uh, became a, a a researcher doing clinical research uh, in the field of nursing. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, what influence did that end up having on you? Did they give you any particular advice in terms of career paths to follow? Did they suggest things you shouldn't do with your life? I think that for both of them, um, doing what you were passionate about and thought was important was the emphasis that it was not, I was not growing up in a household where it was, you must do professions X, Y, and Z because you must make a certain income in order to be considered a success. It was very much, um, what are you passionate about? And, and I think for my father, his passion was teaching and working with students and helping them develop their writing and that's, and doing his own writing. And I think that that's what he was passionate about and that's what he pursued. And I don't think he ever sat down and told me that, but I watched that happen and I, and I 
saw him in the basement of the old school, uh, you know, analog tape recorder recording verbal comments on students' freshman composition papers so they could revise them for their portfolios. Uh, for my, my mother, it was working with people who needed her assistance and care and, and, and comfort and treatment. And then pursuing that later in life with three kids and, and juggling everything that was going on in our house, uh, and deciding to, to get her PhD so that she could do research on the kinds of clinical interventions related to both uh, alcohol-related uh, trauma and car accidents and, um, and, and, and diagnostic tools for better assessing victims of sexual assault and doing that work um, because she thought it was important, not because it was easy. And I think I more observed that rather than had anyone instruct me that that's what I should do. What in the world led you down the path where you would actually you know, write a book about something like context? Because it's such a subtle, nuanced subject that plays such a huge role in our lives. Uh, because, you know, this is to me, like almost every guest I have is not something that the high school guidance counselor says, yeah, here's a potentially good career option for you. Yeah, I found myself as a, a college freshman going to a liberal arts college to major in English or Spanish or something like that. And, and I found myself in an intro psych course because it was just sort of the thing you did. People were taking it. My friends were taking it. And I thought, why not? And what that course did for me was open my eyes to the idea that a lot of the conversations that I have and had had in my life with my friends at the mall food court or with my brothers around the dinner table or just in whatever context about why people were acting the way they were and just human nature more generally, that there was a way to approach that through a scientific lens. And that became my career path. That became what I wanted to do. And I took courses, more courses in psychology and, and behavioral sciences more generally, and uh, found my niche within social psychology, a field that really has as its underlying credo, this idea that situations matter, that that very small, seemingly small aspects of our ordinary environments and circumstances can have a huge effect on how we think and feel and act. And um, that was my path. And I started to conduct research and I, and I, and I started to teach my co courses in this, uh, field and, and, and the book really grew out of that, this desire to, to share with a more general audience, this, this power the context has to shape human nature. Yeah. Well, speaking of context, why do you think it is that somebody like you could recognize, you know, that early in your life that, Hey, wow, there's something here that I clearly have an interest in and a passion for, Versus, you know, I mean, I went to Berkeley four years and I can tell you, I can't really tell you much about any classes that I think had enough of an impact to say, oh, this is going to shape and influence where I do, you know, where I go with my career. Uh, luck. Some of it's luck, right? Some of it is finding yourself in the right spots. And I'm sure that your experiences in, in college, but also before and after have had, you know, uh, it, sort of countless influences in, 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 in shaping who you are and the way you think today, even if it's some of it is to reject a certain class or experience or viewpoint and say, that's not for me and so forth. And, and I, I, at some level, perhaps I was just fortuitous and, and lucky to find myself in these classes in a small sort of liberal art setting where I could really go in depth into them. And, and it, it, it sparked something sort of within me that I, I think had already been there in some of the classes I had taken in high school and books I was reading and movies I was into. And, um, I think we all, as, goes without saying, uh, you know, take our own paths and that, that intersection of 
of, of what's always captivated us with the, the, the environments in which we find ourselves, they, that, that interaction plays out differently for different people. And, and, and for me, it was relatively early on. It was in college that I sort of had that spark of this is what, what I want to do. And, and fortunately, you know, luckily 20, 25 years later, I'm still doing that, teaching the kinds of courses that at that point I was in. And, um, but we all sort of take different paths and that intersection of who we are as people and the environments in which we find ourselves that that's, it's a curious and, and unpredictable intersection. Uh-huh. Well, so you're a college professor, so there's no way I, I, we're going to get out of this conversation without me asking you about education, because I've had a lot of educators here, and, and my dad is a college professor. But uh, the question for me that always seems to come up is, is, you know, what is working with education as current form? What isn't? Uh, and, and how do you see, you know, the material that you teach uh, play out in the lives of your students? Yeah, I mean, I'm going to take the cop out answer and answer it from my <laughs> level of analysis because I, I have the, you know, I was just having a conversation with a colleague about this the other day. You know, I have no aspirations for being an administrator, for being a a dean who has to wrestle with those questions about what 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 works in in higher education, what doesn't. That sounds like like I have blinders on, or but you know what? What I love about my job is that in ordinary circumstances, you know, pre and hopefully post pandemic, I get to get up. Throw throw on a a button down shirt and 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 relatively nice jeans and and go in and um have really interesting conversations with really interesting and enthusiastic students and colleagues and call that job call that work uh yeah. and so what works what's working in acad- academia and what's working in, in higher education is what I get to do every day. And in fact, yes, we're in the middle of a pandemic, but later this afternoon, I'm going to drive to my campus and I'm going to put on a mask and I'm going to be in a socially distanced room of, of 30 undergraduate students who are showing up for a, a purely optional uh, Q&A discussion section that goes along with the the course that they're otherwise taking remotely and asynchronously. And they're going to be there only because they want to be there. And it's not the entire class of 200 some odd students. It's going to be a handful of them who decide to show up for this one session and we're going to do exactly what I just said. We're just going to, we are just going to have uh, a conversation about whatever strikes us at some level. Yes, it will be tied to the social psychology course that, that we are taking, but it very much will be to your question about how we can apply the material from our class to their daily lives. And we have in these conversations this semester, certainly talked about the pandemic and certainly talked about the debates and the campaign and the election, but just have talked about, their lives in, in in general and how this 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 lens of of viewing the world through this um this this perspective of of the ways in which context and situations can can shape us that how how that changes the way they're viewing their lives and how that changes their their interaction tendencies yeah well you know because I, I wonder you know when you're talking to these students what their sort of major existential concerns are because to me you, you think about it you get older the context changes and you start to see things in retrospect that you didn't so you know the example i always come back to is berkeley as this smorgasbord of opportunity that i didn't see yeah. when i was in my 20s because i thought oh my job here is to get as decent grades as possible get a decent job and get the hell out of here yeah uh, and now looking back I, I always wondered what the hell was the point of that? I, I, there's no need to be in such a hurry. And I, right. I only think that that's because the context has changed. Because now that I've spent you know 10 years talking to people like you, I always think that the experience of going back would be wildly different. Oh, for sure. I mean, it's it's the biggest of cliches, the idea that college is lost on us when we're young, right? But uh, I mean, I tell my students this all the time, the ones who are, um, and, and let me be very clear, I, I, 
my students are often fairly privileged. I'm very privileged to leave this, lead this life where this is where I get to do what I get to do for a living. Uh, my students who get to go again to a liberal arts environment and play with these ideas in intellectually for a period of three or four years, that's a privileged existence. And, and yes, some of yeah. them pay their own way and some of them are on, on financial aid. So I'm not even talking about the finances, which is a huge part of it. But, um, you know, this, this, this pandemic has brought into stark, sharp relief for, for, all of us, it should have brought for all of us that, that we in this country and other countries, people live very different lives, right. And what their day-to-day existence is like, but for someone like me and maybe your experience at Berkeley was similar. Yeah. It was the same kind of thing that, you know, I was at this elite liberal arts college and, and, um, I spent, uh, you know, the focus is on, uh, having fun and doing well in your classes. And, and when I talk to my students now at Tufts, uh, I often say to them, they say, well, it's senior year. You know, I'm thinking I'm going to pick up this second minor and whatever. And I'm like, no, 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 no. I was like, just <laughs> w- take a class in, in, in art history, take astronomy. Like this is the opportunity. No one has ever emailed me 10 years later and said, professor Summers just wanted to check in. You know, I really regret that I didn't finish that triple major. No one in the history of the world has ever said that, but what they all say is, you know what? I should have taken a class in like, music of rock and roll or even classical music. Like I, that was my opportunity. I, I always wanted to explore genetics. Why didn't I do that? I know I was, was, was a psychology and dance major, but I could have taken a course in that because it's not easy to do that later. And that's why people listen to podcasts like yours, right? That's why people buy books like mine. That's why people love the whole Ted talk uh, industry, because it's this effort to recapture what at some level is lost on a lot of us at that younger age, this richness of experience and intellectual stimulation that one can stop and try to appreciate while it's happening. But we rarely do, I think, at that age. Yeah. Well, I think that that makes a perfect setup to getting into the concepts in the book. You know, you open the book by saying, when we look at situations objectively, detaching ourselves from the emotion and bias that often cloud our vision, we're better able to pick up the clues that allow us to understand other people and achieve the outcomes we seek. Now, I think the, you know, key words being detach yourself from the emotion and, you know, the bias. So one, what are, how does emotion end up clouding our view of context? Yeah. Emotion serves a lot of um, purposes, a lot of them beneficial, right? There's research that positive emotion sort of broadens what we pay attention to. And and we build on um, previous experiences because of the positive emotions that are associated with the successes or the new opportunities and so forth. But, but it is also the case that a variety of, of biases can get in the way from our ability to, to make the most of, of, of our capabilities and the environments in which we find ourselves. I mean, we are, um, we are remarkably good at protecting the self and the ego from threat and setback and frustration. And that could be a useful buffer so that we can function and, and get work done even after we get that latest rejection at, uh, at work, whether it's me sending off a journal article that gets rejected or whether it's someone, you know, who sends their script or their novel somewhere, whatever it is, or just the day to day rejections and frustrations we can encounter professionally and personally buffering our ego through all these biases that allow us to, 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 to soldier forth and, and move forward is great, uh, in the short term. But, we do when we go through life in this in this way of protecting ourselves from disappointment and frustration and and introspection and improvement um, and just recognition of really what's going on around us that comes with a cost as well and uh, and so a lot of the biases that help us get through our day on a regular basis when you add them up cumulatively um, can be 
problematic if our true goal is to get a real accurate assessment of human nature of our of our own behaviors of our own you know foibles strengths and limitations and so uh, i think bias does play a major role like that so what role do you know experiences like you know parents upbringing culture uh all of that play you know so let me just give you a weird example i moved around a lot as a kid um and I think that, you know, I think as a byproduct of that, my bias is that probably, oh, people aren't going to be around for very long. Um, another bias, I got fired from a bunch of jobs and like corporations are untrustworthy, uh, you know, based on previous experiences. But I wonder, you know, parents and culture in particular, just because of having grown up in an Indian culture, like I wonder about the context of that and the biases that it probably creates. Yeah. I mean, we're talking about context and situations environments mattering and having an influence on us. And certainly culture is, is about as, as influential and as, as wide ranging an influence uh, on us as you could, as you could come up with. Right. And so whether we're talking about um, the different belief systems that, that different parts of the world uh, tend to embrace uh, and then bring with them when they move from one culture to the next, I mean, certainly those, uh, we know from the behavioral sciences uh, play a, a huge role in in how we see ourselves and how we see each other and explain each other's behaviors and so forth. Um, the the environments in which we first experience life are our caregivers. Um, there's a lot of good research out there on uh, attachment style and how the early attachments that we form with caregivers can just can persist and and be um, quite evident in in our later interactions with romantic partners but but friends and on all sorts of social interactions and it's not to say that parents dictate and determine our futures because there's also a fair amount of research that suggests that once you hit a certain age parental influence is pretty limited and it's your peer groups that really make a difference and then of course there's the other kind of culture to talk about just the the general media and popular culture that we all are steeped in in different ways and so um all of these ingredients are part of the complicated algorithm that goes into uh, helping to shape the, the kind of people that we become. And then of course, further complicating things, you, you could, you could have a, a, you could have an identical twin for that matter, but a, a fraternal right. twin or a sibling who goes through the same exact experiences and turns out very differently with some similarities, yeah, that, but yeah, that was literally going to be my next question. You read my mind because, yeah. you know, I mean, my sister and I couldn't be more different. I mean, right. She's a doctor. She's, you know, my, one of my friends is like, your, your sister is like every Indian parent's dream come true. Which I'm like, <laughs> well, I guess that makes me every Indian parent's nightmare. Come yeah. true. Even, yeah. even potentially my own. Because, uh, yeah, I wondered about that, like how you could have two kids, you know, despite having the same exact upbringing. Now, keep in mind, there, there is one thing that, where the context changes. And I, I, actually, there's two major context changes. And I wonder, you know, what research would show about this, like your own research. So when I was, you know, growing up, um, my dad was actually building his career. You, you know, this experience, he was still doing postdoctoral work, you know, trying to get a teaching position that was a tenure track position. And that didn't happen until I was a sophomore in high school. Uh, but, and also as a result of that, we moved constantly. Like I yeah. had been to 13 different schools by the time I, um, got to my final high school in, in California. My sister, on the other hand, by the time she got to sort of that, you know, uh, formative age of adolescence where everything is really influential, my parents, my dad was pretty well established in his career. She also has had the same group of friends um, that she's known yeah. many since sixth grade, whereas I don't think I could tell you anybody that I've known since sixth grade that I would be able to call on the phone and be like, yo, let's have a chat. Yeah. So what's going on, right? Yeah, that's right. So I, you know, in the context, in that context, how do you explain, you know, how we've turned out so differently? Right. And there's, and, and the, both the beauty and the, the 
inherently vexing nature of of studying human beings is that we'll never know and there's and there's two multiple it's such a multiply determined set of outcomes here who we become as people that that it, it's hard to tease apart even post talk but but certainly the differences you just identified could be part of it um you know are, could there be differences in people always like to to grab onto things like birth order and uh gender in terms of how parents teach they or interact with their kids and what they expect of them and so forth i mean that's that's often at the top of people's list when they tell you things like well i have two kids and you know boys will be boys and girls but there, there's a lot that could go into that too but just frankly you know the point of the point of the book just to to be clear and i think i say it in the book is, is not to argue that there are no internal differences between people either like temperament exists and and, and personality exists and and we come out of the womb differently in some respects. I, I I have two daughters myself, and while they have a fair number of similarities, they're two years apart, they have a fair number of differences as well. And, and those differences were pretty evident from the start. One of them temperamentally just yelled at us for months after she was born <laughs> and, and, and just screamed at us. And the other one was, you know, a, a delight to take to, to anywhere. She would ride in the car without having an epic uh, melt. And so, um, you know, there, there's a lot that goes into this from, from, from genetics and temperament and, uh, and, and personality that's formed through our early experiences to also that thing that we never really like to, to attribute, um, outcomes to, and that's sort of chance and, and fluke and luck. And those things, yeah. those things are there and they, they are challenging as, as scientists. And, and I know this sounds like a bit of a, of a, of a tangent and a segue, but, but in my mind, it's all sort of connected uh, yeah, I've been reading a lot about conspiracy theories recently because this mm-hmm. is uh, understandably a, a hot topic right now because, well, whether it's politically or related to, to COVID, um, there, there's a lot of that going on around, it would seem. And, and I think there's, there's an argument to be made that, uh, that the people who are really unable to relinquish their grasp on these conspiracy theories are the ones who have a hard time coming to grasp with the conclusion that, hey, you know what? Sometimes life stuff just happens and you can't explain it. It just, yeah. it happens, you know, a, a terrible car accident happens or um, someone dies at, at, at a young age or uh, the polling error is such that we didn't expect this outcome, but you get another outcome. Sometimes that stuff happens um, and, yeah. and, and you just have to sort of deal with it. And some people are, are better at, at tolerating that ambiguity than are others. And, 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 you know, I think we can apply that to a lot of the, the existential questions we ask about ourselves and the others around us. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss hey dave yeah randy since we founded bombas we've always said our socks underwear and t-shirts are super soft any new ideas maybe sublimely soft or disgustingly cozy wait what i got it bombas 
Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Yeah. So, I mean, the first chapter of the book is called WYSIWYG, and you actually talk about what you say are the, is the invisibility of situation. You say our social lens is set to shallow focus. We see the world with limited depth of field, blurring the background and accentuating in sharp contrast the action up front. And the question for me that comes from that is, how does this influence the decisions we make when it comes to career, relationships, whatever it is? And how do we make sure that we actually, you know, get a view into all of these things that is a bit more accurate to prevent lousy decisions. Yeah, I do think we jump to a lot of conclusions. I think we 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 see a, a small sliver of behavior and we assume that we understand what kind of person we're dealing with. And that phrase, what kind of person um, we're dealing with, is is a challenging one. I mean, I, and I I say this as someone who who feels that he's a pretty good judge of character and a pretty good sizer up of other people. And I think I, I think I think I've gotten fairly good at that uh, over the years. But but at the same time, we have to recognize that we we are we are only getting uh, slivers of individuals in very selected environments. It's not quite as bad as watching reality TV where you only see what the editors have packaged for you. I trust you me, know, I know. Yeah, firsthand. I've been on a reality show recently. So. Oh, is that okay? Well, there you go. So you've got firsthand experience, right? I mean, I have this yeah. conversation with my kids uh, with some regularity. It's like, well, you don't know this. I mean, if there's no conflict, there's no show. So they're showing mm-hmm. you like the two seconds where that went off the rails. The rest of the hour was probably fairly boring. And so, um, yeah, I think in real life, it's not as bad as a reality show uh, editing job, but we only see snippets. My students see me as a recorded image on these asynchronous virtual lectures and they see me in the classroom for an hour at a time, they don't see me 
losing patience with my kids over stupid things like parents do. They don't see me struggling to parallel park on the left side of the road in Boston and people are honking at me. Yeah, they don't they don't see these other aspects of me. And so uh, they feel they have a picture, a, a complete picture of me as an individual. Um, and, and they don't. And so how do we how do we do that? I think I think we have to force ourselves to to take a step back and ask, um, am I getting the whole picture here? You know, what's this situation? What are the constraints of this particular interaction and this particular set of uh, circumstances? Is it reasonable to assume that this person, they'd be acting this way if I saw them in this context? And so I do think we have to question uh, the assumptions that we make. Yeah, I think that's particularly true with public figures. People tend to attribute all sorts of qualities to them. I mean, I you know I'm, I wouldn't say I'm anywhere near famous, but enough people know about me that they attribute certain qualities. I think you know one of the most ridiculous things I ever heard came from somebody who emailed me and was like, "Oh, you must be the most self actualized person in the world because of the content you create." I was like, "No, I'm probably one of the most screwed up people, which is why I create this content." <laughs> um, but it's just interesting because I mean, you see this online in particular. I think where context is overlooked and. You know, people, like you said, they don't see the whole picture because um, I remember I, I just finished publishing this piece called The Psychology of Building an Audience on Medium. And in context was one of the things that came up. And I said, look, you know, behind closed doors, I say things on a daily basis that are a PR crisis in the making. Um, but I would never say those things on air. You know, it's a very different situation with my listeners. And so and I think that people, for some reason, don't particularly understand that, particularly when they look at people on the Internet. Yeah. Yeah, I think you're right. I, I think that we, um, when we see these package per, uh, depictions of the, the internet influencer, which is now a word apparently, when we yeah. see the, the, the politician, I, I think that we do get that sense that we know people much better than we do. And let's face it, we live, we live in a psychologically fascinating era where you know, when you and I were, were in college and we took courses with our professors, they, they didn't have, they weren't tweeting. Um, you didn't, you didn't hear anything from them that wasn't part of the lecture, the formal lecture. I wasn't even getting emails from them. Um, it, it's a very different environment now where the, uh, you, you feel like you have a sense of who individuals are because you have so many different input points. And of course, we don't even know who's helming all of those. The social media that we read for celebrities and politicians may very well not be them. Um, but we do have this false sense of intimacy in many respects, I think, with people in this day and age. Yeah. Well, let's talk about that actually makes a perfect segue to talking about crowds. You know, you talk about the inertia in action and, uh, you know, you say two things here. When no one in the crowd seems concerned by what's going on, each of us feels more comfortable with the status quo contributing to a cycle of inaction that only continues as new individuals enter the scene. Crowds diffuse responsibility and uh, responsibility diffuses in groups. Chemists talk about diffusion in terms of molecules spreading from areas of high concentration to low concentration, the same thing happens to feelings of obligation and responsibility in a crowd. And to me, what's interesting is there's a paradox almost because it takes a group of people to accomplish something, yet you say that crowds diffuse responsibility. So explain to me how that happens and how, you know, how does, how does that play out in our own lives day to day? Yeah. Yeah. I wrote that. Huh? That sounded pretty good. I like that. That was good. I, um, <laughs> uh, the, yeah, the, the psychology of being in a group is fascinating because groups both <laughs> both make us do things that we wouldn't ordinarily do or can help us accomplish things we couldn't accomplish on our own, but they also can, in, in some situations, circumstances, drive us to be passive and inactive and be different people than we would in that 
regard. Uh, and, and so, you know, we can all think of examples of the, of the former, uh, the idea, well, if you, you want to move a couch into a new apartment, you probably need a group of people to do it. And moreover, yeah. you can think of the negative examples of what crowds do on, well, on spring break or, or, uh, you know, on Black Friday when they can go to the stores in hordes of people. And, and so being in a crowd can sort of egg people on. If you think about protests and riots and so forth. Um, but there's also an aspect of being in a group of people that can be this, um, this, uh, this, this apathetic kind of experience that can make you feel very passive because we spend a lot of time in crowds where we're expected to be fairly passive when you're, uh, and again, a lot of this feels like it's pre post pandemic, but when you're in a crowded movie theater, you're supposed to, for the most part, sit quietly or a lecture hall or in public transit and, uh, a crowded city street. You're just trying to get where you need to go and you put on perceptual blinders to, to get there. And so, uh, you know, groups can, can move us in both of those, those directions. And it's, it's, it's one of the great and pretty robust findings of, uh, uh of social psychology that we are different individuals. Our, our tendencies, our psychology is different in a, in a crowd, in a group than it is when we're by ourselves. And that can be used for both positive and for negative uh the outcomes for you know towards both yeah. positive and negative ends well it, it's funny because I, I think annie duke just you know came out came out with a new book called how to decide and she said that often even when people disagree with something they'll actually conform to the group um if the group is if the consensus is large enough right right so there are these you know and we talk i talk about this in the book and there are these famous studies by by solomon ash where they 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 show groups of people uh, a, a series of lines. It's a really easy job. Your, your job is to, to say which of these three lines is the same length as this target line over here. And by yourself as an individual, you get it right 99.5% of the time. But if they put you in a group that has actors and every once in a while the actors give the wrong answer, by the time it gets around to you, you've got a choice. Do I give the answer I know to be right? Do I break with the crowd and, and give the wrong answer? And it's not that we're mindless automatons. In fact, you know, a third of people never in these studies give the wrong answer, but a good two thirds of people do with some regularity say that which they know to be wrong just because what's it's not worth it. It's not worth the the angst and the the uh, the eyeballs on me and the added psychological heft of, of trying to go against the group on this. And I think if we're honest with ourselves, we can all think of times in our lives where we've done the same. Well, it's funny you say that because like I think back to to Berkeley and and the overwhelming majority of my friends, you know, I mean, it sounds like you probably have been in similar environments. It was kind of a given that you're going to either become a banker, a management consultant, a doctor, or a lawyer. It was, you know, almost like a fast food menu of careers. And so you never think to question whether there are other options. It's almost as if the options in front of you blind you to the possibilities that surround you. Yeah, it, it becomes important in like that example I just gave you. Um to, to have someone who who sort of breaks through and shows you that, you know what, there are assumptions here, there are norms here, they don't have to be followed. I mean, in that study, what Ash found was just having one other person in the group who's willing to break with the group and give the correct answer liberates participants themselves to give the right answer. In fact, just having one person in the group break with the group and give a different wrong answer is enough to make me as an individual feel liberated to give the right answer. It's as if sort of a new norm or a new set of uh, expectations has been has been authored or, or you, your eyes have been open to it. Oh, I can disagree with these people. That's okay. And and there are many times in life where uh, it takes seeing a concrete example of somebody doing something different to make you realize, oh, there is a different way to do it. And, and of course, those of us who can realize that without the example often are innovators and, and, and folks who become quite influential and, and in, 
and, and some you know successful and even wealthy because of it. Yeah. Well, so I think that that, you know, you know, is a perfect setup for the next question, which is somebody listening to this might be like, all right, that sounds lovely. Um, I have a boss who I, I disagree with, but if I disagree with my boss or challenge his authority, uh, I'll get fired. I think particularly when we have situations where other people have, you know, higher authority or higher status. Sure. Um, going against the grain seems really challenging. So like, what do you say to those people? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's true, right? I mean, the, the, the power that uh, structure and status and authority have on us um, is is pretty well documented. I mean, there are there are ways to, uh, you know, even with absent the idea of a status difference, if you're in the in the attitudinal minority in a group, there are times where the minority viewpoint comes to to win, and that's by being really consistent and uh, by maybe having built up a, a store of goodwill by having been a a good uh, group member who's towed the line in the past that liberates you to be a little bit uh, outspoken and go rogue once in a while down the road, but it's a challenge, right? There's there's no there's no question that when one is put in a position where someone in a higher status authority position has a different viewpoint or or tells you to do something you don't feel that you should do, that's an unenviable position to to be in. I mean, I I think more generally in life though, there are lessons to be learned that we can shape the um, the, the normative structures of the situations in which we find ourselves. So for example, that, that line judging study, there's no authority figure there. That's just a, a question of breaking free from the mold of what other people are doing. I think we can apply that to some pretty important stuff that goes on in day-to-day, uh, day-to-day society these days. I mean, just take, take about as serious an issue as you could come up with things, racism and other forms of, of, of bias, which unfortunately are on the uptick in our society in in the United States and elsewhere in the last couple of years, I think there's often a mentality that someone has said something terrible on social media, but what am I going to do about it? I'm not going to change their opinion. Um, but you know what? Other people see what you say and other people see the normative structure of the situation based on what isn't, isn't said. And when, when someone says something uh, or encourages workers to do something that's wrong or illegal, when someone says something that's, that's racist or otherwise, uh, biased, and, and nobody speaks up and nobody says anything, there is truth to this idea that silence is complicity. And if people learn that, well, no one's saying anything, I guess it's not appropriate to stand up to this or to say something to the contrary, that influences everyone else. So sometimes I think when you've got the the somewhat unhinged relative at Thanksgiving, whether it's on Zoom or otherwise, who's spouting off something that's based in no reality, that's conspiracy theory, or that's 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 racist or otherwise offensive, you might not be able to change that person's mind on Facebook or whatever the the, the domain is and where where this is happening. But other people are watching, and other people hear and see what you say, and 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 I think that our responses do shape the normative environments in which other people exist, and that's an important conclusion to keep in mind. Yeah. Well, let's you know get into sort of two practical examples where context plays a role. Um, you know, the first being love, the second you know being consumer behavior. But let's start with love. You know, I think I think this, this was one of my favorite chapters of the book. You know, just because it was something I related to so much. You, you know, you say we romanticize about soulmates under you know, ponder the mysteries of animal magnetism and deem attraction too magical for rational analysis. We prefer our packaged Hollywood style with predestined couples that persevere through near misses before finally landing each other in the end. And, you know, it, it took a, a, a an old business partner, a good friend to wake me up from that reality and say, you see life as a damn Disney movie. That's not how this works. Yeah. Um, but talk to me, in, uh, you know, in terms of uh, context, like how this plays a role in how we choose our life partners and, and how we can make sure we don't choose the wrong ones. 
we do have this sense, I think, and it's both reflected in and shaped by movies and other fictional uh, depictions of, right, there being two people, there being this soulmate uh, that you've got to somehow uncover and find. And, and I understand the allure of that. Um, it's also fairly daunting. Uh, there's a, by last count, what we have to 7 billion people in the, in the world right now. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. The, the, yeah, you know, like, like that's a pretty, that's pretty much the needle in the haystack idea. And, and, and what am I supposed to do if, if, if my, you know, the, the, the ding to my dong is an Azerbaijan. I mean, I, that's tough luck for me. I'm not going to find them. Uh, and so, you know, I, I do think that while a lot of people don't like, uh, applying a uh, scientific lens to the idea of attraction, what draws us to other compatibility, relationship satisfaction, that really it should be somewhat liberating. This, this idea that, that there are circumstances, circumstances, environmental factors that make uh, forming connection to someone else, whether we're talking about sort of a romantic sexual connection or just, you know, close uh, friends or, or work partners or, or, or what have you. I, I think uh, that, that idea that, that, in the right circumstances, those kinds of relationships are, are more ripe for the picking than others. That can be a liberating conclusion. Yeah. Well, it just makes me think. So I, you know, I alluded to a reality show earlier. It was this thing called Indian matchmaking. And I remember the first conversation I had with the matchmaker. It literally was like, you know, is there a particular school that you want this girl to have gone to? Is there a particular op- occupation? I was like, lady, I'm not interviewing somebody for a damn job here. Yeah. I'm like, I'm looking for a life partner, but I, I wonder, so from your research, where do you think she blew it? Because the funny thing about that show is literally none of the couples that she matched were a success. And she's okay. supposedly India's, you know, top matchmaker. Hopefully I don't get sued for saying this, but you yeah. know, journalists have said there hasn't been a single match that was successful that came out of it. And the one girl she said that would be the hardest to match was a girl who was divorced and, you know, an Indian culture for no good reason. That's basically a scarlet letter. And yet yeah. that girl is the only one to have gotten married from all the people that were on the show. Well, it, it, it's a, it's a hard question to answer. I think that, that, um, this idea and a lot of people pay money for dating apps and websites that use an algorithm to say who their perfect partner is. And the formula doesn't seem to work that well, but we do, there are some tried and true conclusions out there about what does predict and facilitate attraction. And, and some of them are so obvious that they almost seem like they shouldn't be research conclusions, but similarity is one. I mean, the, you know, birds of a feather flock together gets a whole lot more support than the whole idea of opposites attract. And, and yes, I know we've all been drawn to people who are very different than we are. And, And plenty of people are very happy and, whether they're interfaith relationships or or Republican and Democrat together or interracial relationships. And that's not the argument that, that you know, no, no one's arguing against that. But in the aggregate, similar values and experiences and attitudes tend to be attractive to us. It's why we often find ourselves in groups with like-minded other people. Um, uh, you know, familiarity and proximity are hugely important. Just the more time you spend with someone and cross paths with them, the, usually the more positive you are inclined towards them, much as the more often you hear a commercial jingle on the radio with time, even if it's annoying at first, there, there often becomes a sort of familiarity and familiarity does seem to breed liking more than contempt. And so um, it, it's hard to <laughs> operationalize those things as a matchmaker, as, a, as an algorithm yeah. on a dating app. <laughs> Well, it's funny you say that, like, you know, think about similarity. I'm like, I told this woman, I'm a surfer and you matched me with a girl who said she hates the beach. Like, yeah, <laughs> clearly you missed the boat on this. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And so exactly. And so I think <laughs> share sh- the ability for shared experience is really important. And, and, and maybe at some level, that's what the, what the impetus was for her asking about 
where the person has gone to school and so forth, but that's, it's really a yeah. proxy for something else. So, uh, you know, again, similarity, familiarity, proximity, all really important ingredients that we don't often think about. Yeah. Well, I remember a friend asked me about, you know, this person. I was like, well, I'm like, would you hire Hannibal Lecter to operate on one of your family members? No, that's about my, that was like my last sort of conclusion about this. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. Well, well I mean, what, dating, uh, dating yeah. and cannibalism. I got to watch the show now. This sounds great. Yeah. Oh yeah, we'll have to tell you'll have to email me about it and yes. tell me tell me about it through the context of your own research. Um well let's do one other thing. You know, I think part of the reason your work really struck me is when I started looking at purchasing behavior, particularly when it came to purchasing behavior in, you know, online courses and watching how people looked at authority figures, um, people who are establishing something and completely overlooked the context. And, and let me give you a backdrop for for this. Um, you know, somebody who basically is wildly popular online or has a really successful podcast, millions of listeners goes out and says everybody should start a podcast. And nobody questions that to or looks at all the things that fall below it, like, hey, wait a minute, this person has had a 10 year head start. This person has 70,000 people on their email list to tell about the podcast. Um, you know, there's all these things that nobody considers. So, yeah, I mean, even when you read a sales page, like, of course, the sales page is designed to hide some of the context. I know because I've written a few of them, um, not intentionally, but, uh, you know, I know. And this is something that I always tell people is like, look, I won't teach a podcasting course because I can't replicate certain aspects of the context for you. I got a 10-year yeah. head start. I had, you know, this amazing mentor. I'm like, that has to be taken into consideration, yet it almost never is. Yeah. And and again, the serendipity of so much. I mean, <laughs> I have two teenagers at home. So we are, I am somewhat fluent in the language of, say, TikTok, though not on it myself. And, <laughs> uh, and so you hear about these people who a year ago, nobody knew and now have literally 50, a hundred million followers. And you ask, what do they do? And like, well, she dances. Like you're like professionally trained. You're like now, like, like little dances that she comes up with, um, to, to songs, you know, they're pretty easy to learn. She seems nice enough. And it, and it really is hard and to, to figure out what the algorithm is behind the scenes that's making this person take off like this. And of course, if any company in the world would love to find out, cause they'll do it for their own products or their own, uh, spokespeople and so forth. But, and given that, given that an ordinary person in this day and age can have that happen, it gives hope to anyone that they can too, right? And so uh, whether it's podcasting, whether it's being the the social media influencer, um, yeah, I think it's really hard to, well, you did this, you did this, you must know what the the, the formula was, teach it to me. And, you know, the, the formula was a lot of serendipity and a lot of turns here and there, or in some cases, just flat out luck. And it, it, it's hard to, um, to, to recapture, not to mention what you're talking about with, you know, podcasts, everyone's got to have their own style and their own way of doing it. It's, well, for, for me, things often go back to Seinfeld. And it's a little bit like the George Costanza storyline where Jerry wants to learn how to lie. And he's like, I can't teach you how to lie. It's like asking Pavarotti to teach you how to sing. I, I, I don't know. It's just, <laughs> it's part of who you are. And so... Uh, and, and, you know, I, I, I'm not a podcaster, but I teach and, and yeah. with the style that I have sort of honed or come upon or fallen into after 20 years of doing this work for somebody else, probably not. And, and so, you know, I, I teach much like I wrote that book, much like we're having this conversation in very conversational fashion. And that has turned out to work, I think for me and for my students, but I don't know that it works for everybody. And, and, and it's frankly, probably an easier strategy to, to, to have be successful as, as, as a white male who walks into the classroom and doesn't have a lot of people immediately 
casting aspersions on my authority and so forth. And so there's so <laughs> many for, so many factors that that come into that. It is hard to articulate. Yeah. Well, I mean, it just you know makes me think. I was like, if somebody tried to reverse engineer my career path. It's like, let me get this straight. Like, if I told you to reverse engineer my career path, it would be a terrible idea. I'm like, I got fired from every job, rejected from every business school. Yeah started a blog. And then by dumb luck, I mean, granted, there was work involved. Somehow my editor stumbled up on, you know, my article on Medium two years after I wrote it and said, you know, would you like to write a book? I'm like, you can't. I was like, you'd. it would be the height of stupidity to try to reverse engineer that and think yeah. it would lead somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. And I think just recognizing that is an important part of uh, the, the, the whole process as well, because it, well, um, those of us, in different domains and very different ways in life, professional, personal, otherwise who achieve success in any realm, uh, it can be easy sometimes to lose sight of that, to the, the, the luck that went into it. That doesn't mean it wasn't hard work, but the luck and, and, and various forms of, of privilege and just the, you know, they, they, there are very, very, uh, thin margins that separate success from abject failure in a variety of different domains. And that's threatening also. That's a threatening worldview to have. Um, but yeah. sometimes looking back, I think it's useful. Yeah. Well, you know, let's wrap this up. You close the book by saying, you know, we cling to a view of the self as an independent agent unswayed by others. Time and again, we convince ourselves the brief exposures to public behavior allow us to really know someone only to get burned by the boy next door turned serial killer or moralizing politician caught with his pants down. Uh, you know, like I think about all of this and, and I wonder, you know, if you could leave us with, you know, sort of one piece of advice not to fall victim to overlooking context, you know, what would you say to people? I, I think, I, I think the, the, the moral of the book really has to be just to ask questions, to, to, yeah. to consistently, um, be less than, um, complacent. I mean, I, I think that, um, I, I'm not saying that, that you take your 30 year long spouse or close friend and say, and, and on a regular basis, question them, interrogate them about being a serial killer. That's not, that is not the argument here, but, but just the, the sense that, um, you know, pe people are going to consistently surprise us. I, I think that it's, it's worth, it's worth keeping that in mind. Even, even your closest of friends who you've known for decades is capable of things and has done things that you don't know about and, and that would surprise you. And, and frankly, I think sometimes we have surprised ourselves with what we're capable of doing. And so, um, I, I'm not, I, I don't get surprised like that anymore, I guess. And, and I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. Maybe that makes me cynical. Um, but, but I think that, uh, I think we have to recognize there is this incredibly broad continuum of human capacity that, that we all have and we all make choices and we're all subject to different circumstances and are faced with different choice sets, some of which are, are more palatable than, than our others and more navigable than our others. But, um, you know, we human beings are fascinating to study and interact with because we are capable of, of so much the, as I tell my students, you know, the, 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 the terrific and the terrible, right? I mean, just the, 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 the tremendous examples of, of heroism and, and ingenuity and innovation. And then the examples of, of, of depravity and, and cowardice and sometimes from the same people. And I think that that's an important conclusion to keep in mind. Yeah. Well, uh, this has been fantastic. So I have one final question, which is how we finish all of our interviews with the unmistakable creative. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? What do I think it is that makes someone something unmistakable? And I just did the thing where I repeat the question again, right? So that's the tell that I have to think about that response. Um, I, I think that <laughs> we don't know. And I think if we knew 
uh, we would we would all try to capture that and bottle it. I mean, back to our conversation about the the unpredictable sudden mega influencer on social media. I, I don't think we necessarily know. I, I think that certainly things that violate our expectations are memorable and and hard for us to to forget. I think things that that lead to an emotional resonance in us are things that we remember more deeply and feel more deeply as as life moves on but but again i think that the uh, unpredictability of life in many respects is what makes certain outcomes and certain individuals uh unmistakable it's the it's the it's the things that we look back on or the people that we look back on that somehow surprised uh, surprised us that elicited some sort of emotional response that that violated some expectation or or set of assumptions that we had those things often stick with us we like we like order in the world we like predictability and 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 things that that ruffle those feathers or that that undermine that worldview we're trying to to reach of 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 feeling things are predictable those things are often unmistakable for us amazing um well i can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us and share your story and your uh, wisdom and insights with us this has been you know funny and insightful and thought-provoking uh where can people find out more about you your work and everything that you're up to they can find me um, on um, well. They can they can find me at, at, at my website www.samsummers s a m s o m m e r s dot com. Stuff about my books, stuff about uh, uh, my research, speaking opportunities, and media coverage, and so forth. Um, the the books I've written a couple books, situations matter, and then a, and a book on what the world of sports has to tell us about human nature that I wrote with John Wertheim, who's a, an editor at Sports Illustrated. That one's called Your Brain on Sports. And so those those two books are pretty good uh, insights into the kind of work that I do and the kind of stuff that interests me too. Awesome. And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring, instructive, maybe even heartwarming? Can you think of anyone, a friend or a family member who would appreciate this moment? If so, take a second and share today's episode with that one person because good ideas and messages are meant to be shared. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. 
Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Support comes from ServiceNow the AI platform for business transformation. You've heard the hype around AI. The truth is, AI is only as powerful as the platform it's built into. ServiceNow is the platform that puts AI to work for people across your business, removing friction and frustration for your employees, supercharging productivity for your developers, providing intelligent tools for your service agents to make customers happier. All built into a single platform you can use right now. That's why the world works with ServiceNow. Visit servicenow.com slash AI for people to learn more. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolves. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.